Hello everyone, I'm Jakub Tony, and this is the FDI Podcast. COVID-19 has made the argument for investment protectionism stronger as governments across the globe rush to protect strategic assets or even distressed assets from foreign investment and takeover. In this mini-series of podcasts about investment protectionism, we'll take you around the globe to see how different countries are carving out their own FDI screening mechanisms and what it means for global trade and investment. First up, Australia, where basically any foreign investment transaction, regardless of its value, is now subject to the review of the Foreign Investment Review Board. Chris Rosario, a partner with law firm Squire Patton Box, has joined the FDI podcast from Perth, Australia. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris, so the screening of certain foreign investment transactions has been a sensitive topic in Australia for several years now, but COVID-19 has taken this debate to a whole new level, uh, and the government has introduced a number of major reforms, or at least proposed uh, major reforms to the existing framework of uh, FDI screening. But before getting to the details of uh, these reforms, do you want to give us a feeling of the, the, the political market environment of the past few months that eventually led to those uh, changes? Not a problem. I think that one of the very interesting things that the Australian government has been advocating since the start or the real onset of the pandemic, which really kind of started to hit Australian shores when we moved into shutdown mode around March, was their desire, as they put it, to facilitate hibernation. And by doing that, what they were hoping was that they could put the economy into hibernation, prevent a number of corporate collapses. However, against that backdrop, they decided to take a hard look at foreign foreign investment. There were rumours about um, the Liberal coalition government, um, a number of backbenchers agitating um, before anything was announced about their concern around foreign investors essentially coming in and picking up Australian assets on the cheap. They used um, words in press releases about ensuring that there was no opportunistic takeover of vulnerable assets. And that was really the backdrop or the political context before anything was announced. Do you want to give us an, an overview of the changes that have been introduced? As far as I understand, there, there have been two, 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 two different types of changes, temporary changes to existing FDI screening regulation. But there is also a, a, a more... Uh, a broader uh, FDI screening uh, reform of the FDI screening uh, mechanism that the government is uh, proposing and willing to 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 approve by make it operative by the end of the year. So, do you want to give us uh, an overview of these these changes that have been introduced and how they are functional to this uh, overall idea of uh, economic uh, hibernation that the government? Uh, I try to pursue uh, right from the onset of the pandemic. Absolutely. So the interesting thing is last year, foreign investment wasn't really a, a key political theme. It wasn't very much in focus. However, with the onset of the pandemic, we actually saw the government um, in late March on a Sunday night announce immediate changes to foreign investment. And this took a lot of people by surprise because this is an area of law where there's normally a large amount of consultation before any significant change. But essentially, late on a Sunday evening, the Treasurer announced emergency measures um, effective immediately that all foreign investment was now going to be subject to a $0 threshold. 
So previously before that, there was a monetary threshold before foreign investors were subject to review. Um, and on top of that, the government also announced at that time that they were immediately extending the time frame to review foreign investments from a 30-day period to as long as six months. Um, so the interesting thing was immediate changes, which would have effect for all foreign investment um, from late March onwards were immediately implemented. Um, as you foreshadowed though, that on top of that, um, a few weeks later um, in, in June, the government announced probably their largest reform of foreign investment laws for 20 years. Um, and essentially what they've done as a part of that is introduced a whole host of, of changes to the regime. Um, and it's interesting because it is probably the largest legislative change they are pursuing in the COVID environment. So whilst a lot of the policy of the government is focused on survival and avoiding major reforms, the one exception to that is, is foreign investment. So basically this means that now any uh, transaction uh, proposed by, by a foreign investor, uh, no matter the size of the transaction, is going to be reviewed by the authorities and particularly by the Foreign Investment Review Board. Although these measures are supposed to be temporary, uh, but but they're very broad. They look incredibly broad, right? They are incredibly broad. One of the good things that the government clarified quickly after the announcement, and and for a bit of context, the, the foreign investment regime in Australia is 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 extremely complicated, and it's it's different thresholds and different screening required depending on the nature of investor you are, whether you're just a foreign person or are you a foreign government investor. Um, and also by asset class. So there's different regimes for land, different regimes for, for operative businesses. What the government has clarified is that whilst it's a $0 threshold, existing um, exemptions applied. And really what we're getting at there is it means if you're requiring less than 10% and you're not a foreign government investor, then you're not required to get, um, in many instances, you're not required to get foreign approval um, in the context of listed companies. So one of the early concerns was that if I'm a foreign shareholder and trying to buy one or two percent of an Australian listed company, I now need to go through a six-month period, whereas before I could buy immediately on market. Um, it has been clarified that that exemption remains. However, otherwise, you're completely right. We, we used to have thresholds, um, and if we take a simple one around a, a business acquisition, um, we used to have different thresholds really that varied on whether or not you were one of Australia's preferred free trade partners. And by that, I mean that if you came from China, the United States, Japan, South Korea, normally your investments were around the billion dollar mark before you needed foreign investment approval. If you're investing less than, than 275 million, you used to get away with making your investment without needing approval. And the major change was that once the Treasurer announced those reforms late on a Sunday, the next day, no matter what level of investment you needed to apply for foreign investment review approval. That's quite quite a change to, to be introduced suddenly and abruptly on a Sunday afternoon, right? Correct. It literally went from Sunday evening at about 8pm Eastern Standard Time. They announced that effective immediately. So literally we had the next Monday morning clients who were used to investing in Australia and frequently large foreign investors needed to come to us so that we could take them through the changes and get foreign investment approval because those exemptions that they had relied on were gone. We, we act for a lot of Japanese clients, for instance, yeah. 
they benefited from the billion dollar threshold and all of a sudden to move stock from one wholly owned subsidiary to another wholly owned subsidiary, they needed to go through potentially a six month process with FERB to get consent for something they used to be able to do immediately. Uh, and just to get it straight, uh, we are not talking of just just of uh, specific uh, strategic assets or sectors, and we are not just these regulations that uh, do not apply only to, for example, state-owned uh, foreign state-owned companies. But this really applies across the board to any foreign investor uh, investing into any sector. With some limited exceptions, you're absolutely correct. And I think that is what took people by surprise. It was such a broad ranging, um, it essentially captured all foreign investment. And, and that really took some people by surprise, mm-hmm. extending the review period for up to six months. And that initially led to a lot of concern. Um, I, I won't lie, I was concerned myself because I saw that as potentially having a damaging effect on the economy. I was concerned that some of our preferred trading partners who we knew would eventually get approval would essentially be forced to to sit on the sidelines for six months. However, to their credit, I think um, that Treasury, who is responsible for implementing these reforms, have clearly gone to a lot of effort to try and not delay by too much approvals. Um, They clearly have a huge workload at the moment, um, but we have been impressed by their ability to process applications um, well in advance of that six-month time frame they set themselves. Okay, so I imagine that also they, they must have upgraded the budget for the Foreign Investment Review Board. They must have taken new employees on board to, to deal with all this mounting uh, uh, work, uh, workloads. That's our understanding. We also understand that they have brought in resources from the Australian Tax Office, who are part of the Treasury Department, however, were not previously part of FERB. And that is interesting when we talk about the broader reforms um, and more extensive reforms that are now being proposed, in that one of the key elements that the government sees as a positive is that there is going to be a larger interface between government departments, like the Australian Tax Office, to make the sharing of information more readily available. But um, I I must profess we were concerned about government longevity, but um, we are happy that certain uh, transactions have not been unnecessarily delayed by these reforms, which was always the concern when um, you've got an economy slowing down, we were worried that any impediment to foreign investment would, would harm job creation. Now, that said, it hasn't been without controversy and there have been some decisions as part of these reforms which have not been favourable. However, on a whole, it has not led to a complete stifling of foreign investment. What's the kind of feeling that you gather from your clients when, uh, since you started uh, working with them? Obviously, when it comes to these FDI screening mechanisms, the deterrent element that they bring to the table is also a major one, meaning that uh, sometimes these these regulations, they, they, they tighten up screening so much that investors... They, they just prefer not to go through the screening process with uncertainty of a negative outcome. 
Um, and so basically they pull the, the, the foreign investment altogether or the, the foreign investment intention altogether. How has the market received these changes so far? I must admit, a lot of our um, clients have actually received it better than I had expected. Obviously, there's frustrations mm-hmm. at needing to go through the process. However, mm-hmm. I think the context of such a fundamentally uncertain time has made some of those foreign investors accept, not happy about, but accept that this has been the government's policy solution and something they need to work through. That said, I think there has been some scepticism by some that this has been a broad arching reform, whereas there is a view that it is targeted at one or two specific countries and one or two specific asset classes. And so there is some frustration that rather than just focusing on the areas that the government is truly concerned about, that this has been a sweeping change, which has yeah. meant a lot of work and a lot of frustration for a lot of people. Absolutely. So, so now, um, now, now with the, the the other like sweeping and broader reform that the government is proposing, I understand that they are trying to narrow the the, the focus and the target uh, to some specific strategic. Uh, uh, sectors following in a footstep of what has been uh, done in in uh, elsewhere in places like like Europe, uh, where where countries are being very proactive in uh, identifying strategic uh, assets and sectors. Obviously, the debate has been uh, focused in the past few months on the health sector, the the pharma sector, but but not necessarily. I mean, it's 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 more and more common to 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 see amongst. The, the strategic assets and sectors, for example, uh, technology sectors, um, technologies uh, of the likes of advanced manufacturing, but also even startups now, because uh, countries and governments recognize the strategic value or the, 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 the future strategic value of uh, the kind of innovations that startups can, can develop and make mainstream. Uh, so this new this new reform that the government proposed in, in June goes into this direction. Before you actually even get into the June reforms, I think it's interesting that probably the two most prominent recent um, rejections of investments have actually been into a space um, that we're calling critical minerals. And these are things that are to really aid where people see future opportunities. So we're talking about rare earths, and and minerals that are essential to things like electric vehicle development. And the reason why I think it has been somewhat controversial that those investments have started being rejected is A, those the two prominent cases I'm thinking of were both Chinese investors, but B, it's because the critical minerals sector is, whilst it is a sector that a lot of people view as having a very promising and bright future, it is certainly not a sector of the Australian economy that is overrun with funds and investors at this point in time. Mm. A number of um, very important kind of lithium and cobalt and rare earth companies have really been struggling to raise funds. So it was seen as interesting that the Foreign Investment Review Board rejected investments into that sector. Um, Now, that said, I think you're completely right in that the broader and um, more extensive reforms that the government has announced and we are imminently waiting the release of the exposure legislation, that takes on a broader national security test um, than we have ever seen in Australia. And as you alluded to, it really has followed in the footsteps of similar tests that we've seen introduced in the United Kingdom, 
the US, the EU. What are the strategic sectors that have been, uh, are being considered here? This is the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> the government says that it's going to go through an exposure period and a consultation period. Their initial comments when they announced these reforms, which they're proposing a six week consultation period starting shortly is, um, you know, they're talking about critical infrastructure and industries and companies where personal data is involved. And so I think that they have opened themselves up to say, we, we are going to consider a very broad test about what they are calling a sensitive national security business. Um, but what a sensitive national security business is going to be really remains to be seen. Um, there were some concerns when the journalists were first crossed and kind of background about these reforms um, that they might even extend to um, quote unquote energy. Obviously, the, the concept of energy could capture almost almost any number of Australian businesses. However, the Treasury paper that was released shortly thereafter um, didn't seem to didn't seem to suggest as broad a um, definition, but um, it really seems to it could potentially capture any number of areas telecommunications, critical infrastructure, supply of defence and security related goods. So this is really the, the big unknown to us in Australia at the moment is how far reaching is this going to be? We spoke earlier about the current temporary zero dollar threshold. What the government have said is if your, if your business is classified as a sensitive national security business, then there is going to forever be a zero dollar threshold before foreign investors need to seek further approval. There are sectors where, where the risk is that this zero dollar threshold is, go is going to be permanent as opposed to the current temporary uh, form. Correct. So yeah. essentially the consultation at the moment is what is this going to be? What areas are going to forever have a zero dollar threshold going forward? What are the proceedings at the moment that the government proposed uh, this uh, reform, this new legislation to Parliament? Uh, what timeline are you are you foreseeing there in terms of when should we expect the new uh, reform to be eventually take its final shape and uh, be eventually discussed and approved? So quite honestly, we're expecting to see the draft legislation any day now. Um, the government okay. indicated it would be before the end of July, and that is imminently upon us. Um, and then they flagged a six-week consultation period. Um, we expect a lot of feedback about these reforms because they're not just about uh, what whilst national security um, and this new national security test is probably the most obvious one, um, there are broader reforms within there. Um, for instance, there's, there's a new call in power, which essentially means that at any time before or after a transaction is concluded, um, that the treasurer or FERP is going to be able to call in a transaction for scrutiny. Um, okay. And very, very significantly, there's um, what's being classified as the last resort power. And that's essentially where the government is saying they're proposing a reform where even if they've previously approved a deal, they are going to have the power to call it in and look at it again on a national security basis and potentially even order divestment. And that is something that we have not seen before in our FERB rules. There are some um, nuances around um, legislation which in very limited circumstances would allow um, essentially ASIO, one of our key 
kind of information regulators to, to look at very critical security infrastructure okay. um, on a post-acquisition basis. But it, it, this is a very broad reform that we haven't normally seen. Okay. What, what, what has been the narrative around this reform? Um, obviously, the main focus here is that we are introducing this new regulation on the ground of uh, national security. Has there been any mention to things like technology sovereignty, uh, which is something that we are seeing uh, here in Europe uh, in places like Germany? And the German government uh, has broadened the scope of this uh, FDI screening regulation to, to embrace concepts like technology sovereignty that doesn't necessarily directly relate to national security, but in a way directly relates to the economic foundations of the German economy, uh, meaning that they want to, to, to protect the technology that they are able to develop, uh, particularly manufacturing and uh, with uh, advanced manufacturing uh, moving forward as a way to, to protect their economy. So do you think that the narrative around the, these reforms also in Australia is moving uh, towards embracing things like technology sovereignty or for the time being, uh, it's the focus uh, still falls exclusively on national security? I absolutely do think that technology is part of it. Um, I think that you need to look at the differences though between um, the German economy and the Australian economy as while um, technology and I guess we would say high-end um, um, technical development is part of our economy, we are probably not as reliant on it as we are other sectors. So it is certainly coming through in the narrative around the need to protect technology, essentially to avoid vulnerabilities, but it is usually in the context of national security that the government is mentioning it. Um, the, the Australian economy is, and politically has a lot invested in, in agribusiness and mining and land-based um, natural resources. And so just because of economic differences, we see a lot more of the discussion fall within that context. Yeah. So whilst I would never say no, that techno technological protection isn't a key part of it, I would never say, it, I would not say it is the main focus in the narrative coming through by the government. It may, may very well be something that's important to them behind closed doors, but it does not lead the discussion. And has there been any focus to startups? Mainly around um, data protection and storage. I think we're seeing this as a, as a key theme in many um, countries around the world. And it is certainly, uh, a, a discussion about where well, we need to um, ensure that any kind of startup that's collecting or maintaining sensitive data isn't going to be uh, vulnerable to um, a foreign investor that we, we do not want to see. What do you think that these, these changes uh, tell us about Australia's uh, trade and investment policies moving forward. Do you believe that these changes would have uh, come through uh, even without uh, this COVID pandemic or, or they, they sort of like they are, they are COVID native, uh, so to say, changes and they are inevitable in this new market environment? I think the modernization of Australia's foreign investment regime is not about them. I think that it has always been a very a difficult regime to navigate. Um, now that said, do I think it would have happened at this speed? 
um, uh, and this year, if it was not for COVID, no. I think that circumstances have um, given the government an opportunity to push through an agenda that I believe um, meets and fits within their ideology. Um, and however, I think that the opportunity has really presented itself because Australians are very conscious at the moment about protection, protection from a virus coming in. Um, and obviously that narrative can then feed through to protecting a, um, an economy and a country. And I think the um, elephant in the room from an Australian context that we haven't named is, um, is China. And I won't pretend to be a geopolitical expert. However, um, the undertone of all discussion and around these rules are what is the impact on China? Is it targeted at China over other countries? And what is the future of Australia's trading relationship with China? Do you expect any specific mention with regards, uh, when it comes to the new reform, with regards also to the, the origin of the investment? Meaning, do you, do you expect that there will be specific countries that where scrutiny will be particularly high, uh, obviously China, but also potentially others, or they will try to save uh, appearances and just make it general? I think that absolutely it will be an implicit approach. I don't think they will expressly name anyone. The Australian approach has previously been to name countries that they are applying less scrutiny to and higher thresholds to. Now, interestingly, that included China. Right, exactly, yeah. So I wouldn't expect any express reference to China in the legislation um, to single it out. Um, however, certainly anecdotally, um, and from what we're seeing, um, China is being subject to uh, a higher level of scrutiny than some other investors. Here, the risk uh, may be that uh, uh, there could be companies needing capital, uh, particularly in this uh, market environment that is very is very tough for 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 a number of uh, uh, sectors like you mentioned mining, but not exclusively mining. Uh, there are companies that may need capital, and there are companies that may may normally be able to raise that capital. Uh, you know, with uh, foreign investors that at the moment uh, they, they, they cannot access that, that, that capital anymore. It's a sort of like a very delicate balance between uh, protecting uh, uh, your economy, but also keeping a, a foreign source of capital open uh, to finance your companies. Absolutely. I think the figures are that one in 10 jobs um, in Australia um, relates to a foreign business. And um, we, we are not a, we are a large geographical country, but we have a small population and we have um, globally small capital markets and we rely on foreign funds to get projects going. Um, in some ways, I see this as an opportunity for some countries who we have very long and, and strong trading partnerships with, such as Japan, who are not a focus of, of these new laws to really kind of bring themselves back as the most favoured Australian investor um, because they are not, whilst on paper they're subject to the same regime, anecdotally we are not seeing them be subject to the same level of scrutiny and knockback and it is certainly an opportunity for them to bring um, large amounts of capital to Australia which has a relatively weak dollar globally at the moment um, and deploy it in some of these industries especially when some of their competitive nations 
are finding it harder to inject funds because of the government's view of them. Chris, thank you very much for this very insightful conversation. What What is, as a very final remark, what is the, the main piece of advice that you give uh, uh, to your clients that are calling up and inquiring about these uh, new regulations, how to navigate this, this uh, evolving uh, regulatory framework? The main thing I would caution everyone and caution clients is that the Australian economy is very reliant on foreign investment. And it's very easy to hear about these reforms and these changes and be concerned that we're closing the door on foreign investment. That is just not the case practically day to day. There are a limited number of deals that are actually rejected. They are often um, subject to political considerations. And we really are a regime which most foreign investors will be able to invest in and navigate and get approval efficiently and quickly. And that's what we're here to do. And I think at the end of the day, the government knows that that's what our economy relies on and they won't establish a regime that dissuades that. That's fantastic. Chris Rosario, partner with law firm Squire Patton Box, joining us from Perth, Australia. Thank you very much, Chris, for, for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. In the second episode of this mini-series about investment protectionism, we'll take you to Brussels, where the European Commission issued in March new guidance for its members regarding the protection of strategic assets, distressed assets, and even startups. As always, you can find all our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and ACAS, or on fdiintelligence.com slash podcast. Until the next time. Thank you.